1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first of importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of you, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then I, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated. Chapter 15 is a magnificent chapter dealing with the greatness of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, without which no man can be saved. The greatest question anyone can and must ask is this. Have I truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of my soul. I did not ask you, are you religious, per se. I did not ask you, are you trying to try very hard to prove yourself to God. I'm asking you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Do you talk with your Savior daily? Do you fellowship with Him in His Word and in prayer daily? If not, how do you know that you have not believed in vain? Because it is possible to believe in vain. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So it is possible to believe in vain. Brethren, be sure that you have not believed in vain. Our passage today in verses 1 through 11 deals with the nature of the gospel. And that gospel is preached. I ended chapter 14's exposition stressing the necessity of preaching in the Word of God. We hear a lot of things today from pulpits in various places, but the old-time gospel, I fear, is being neglected in so many places, being replaced by how-tos in our personal human relationships. Now, granted, these issues are important, and they have their place in the Christian life. And they must be preached on. However, the stress of Scripture is always the gospel. 
the gospel of Jesus that Jesus preached, that the apostles preached, and what every faithful preacher down through history has preached. We must remember that the great mystery hidden from ages past, revealed through tongues and prophecy, in chapter 14, was said to be the glorious gospel. Jesus began his ministry as recorded in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Let's turn to that passage. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These two things form the basis of our commanded response to the gospel message. In a moment, we're going to, going to take a look at the two fundamental aspects of what constitutes the gospel. But for the time being, we're looking at what are the divine commands in response to the gospel that is preached. And Jesus said that the two commands that he gives are repent and believe. But repent of what? Believe in what? In verse 1, Paul said that he preached to the Corinthians the gospel which they believed and in which they stand. The gospel that saves you and I is the gospel that we believe in and the one that we continue to stand in and the one that we persevere to the end to the time, to the last time we take a breath. Some don't understand fully the implications of verse 2 in our text. We are saved only if we believe and stand fast in the gospel. The true gospel that we have believed in. The true gospel in which we have persevered. Then we read these ominous words, And let these resound deep into the recesses of your heart, that we are saved in believing that gospel, unless, unless, we have believed in vain. So you see, it is possible to think you were saved, and you're not. It is possible to believe in vain. I cannot even fathom something more terrifying than this, to think you were saved, but only to hear on the great day of judgment, Jesus say to us, as he did, say in Matthew 7.23 to those who have done many marvelous works in his name, yet Jesus says to them in Matthew 7.23, quote, I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, a passage that I have mentioned to you, Numerous times, it says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Since Scripture commands us to test ourselves, 
We're going to take a test today with reference to the gospel. And we had better pay close attention because failing this test means you will spend an eternity separated from God in hell forever. This is the ultimate test. The gospel is all about Jesus, not ourselves. This is the first major exam question that I'm giving to you. If you think it is all about you being good and trying to be good, if it's all about you trying to earn something before the living God, then you have failed at the outset. You have failed the exam and will perish forever. Paul understood this in verses 9 and 10 of our text in 1 Corinthians 15. He said he was the least of the apostles. But by verse 10 he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. He was the great persecutor of the church. Now I ask you, was Saul of Tarsus looking to be saved when he was on the road to Damascus? I do not think so. He was on the road to Damascus, on his way to Damascus, to arrest more Christians. He was the great persecutor of the church. And that's why he says, really, I'm the least of the apostles. Even though his ministry probably was the greatest of all the apostles, nonetheless, because he was once a persecutor, he said, I'm the least of the apostles I am what I am by the grace of God. But brethren, that's our testimony, or should be. We are what we are by the grace of God. It's not of works. It's all of grace. The gospel is all about God descending to this earth, being humiliated, becoming a man to show love to sinners who deserved nothing but his wrath, and becoming the propitiation for their sins. Scripture says, You have believed in vain, if you think that salvation is by works. Take a look with me at Romans chapter 3, verses 21. Romans 3:21. But now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Righteousness of God is not by our keeping of the law because we cannot keep it. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, which reads, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keeping standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again, to every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. 
For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. In this text, Paul says to the Judaizers, who were this group of people who believed that you had to keep the Mosaic law and particularly circumcision in order to be saved. They had turned their freedom into slavery. And Paul says, if you attempt to work your way into heaven by the keeping of the law, then you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. That term, fallen from grace, simply means this. Faith is the opposite, or grace is the opposite of works. If you work for something, then you have earned something. But salvation in Christ is not by doing something ourselves. It's all about having faith in Jesus who did everything for us when we couldn't do anything for ourselves. So we see that if you are seeking to be justified by the keeping of the law, then you have failed the test. Jesus is not in you. The exam continues. We read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 and 4, we see two fundamental doctrines that must be maintained, that must be believed, and it is captured in our text in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what the text says. Verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. These two fundamental doctrines that you have to believe in, that constitute the essence of the gospel, are the atoning death of Jesus and Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day. You must believe in both. In order to be saved, you must remain steadfast in both in order to be saved. There is no salvation without the shedding of blood of the God-man on behalf of undeserving sinners. You must acknowledge your unworthiness before God. Like the publican, that is the tax gatherer, in Jesus' parable recorded for us, In Luke chapter 18, in this parable, you have pitted the Pharisee against the tax gatherer or the publican. The tax um, collector said that he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he kept saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
And you can see the humility there. You can see the brokenness, the confession of sin, the unworthiness before a holy God. You see, Jesus says we must acknowledge our unworthiness, just like the publican. But Jesus said, the man, the Pharisee, who's boasted in his parable says, I am not like other people. I'm not a thief. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector here. I tithe and I fast twice a week. The Pharisee was one who was seeking works, righteousness. He trusted in his own righteousness. He was arrogant. He said, I am not like this man. And Jesus says, you know what? You're not like this man. Because this man humbled himself before me and will go away justified. But you, you who sought righteousness by the law which you cannot keep, you will perish forever in your sins. The Pharisee failed the exam. The tax collector passed the exam. All who trust in their outward religion, however it is manifested, are lost in their sins and have believed in vain. Any feeling of earning points with God through outward religion and thinking that this is salvation, that is vain religion. Paul said earlier in Corinthians that I've determined to know not anything, nothing, outside of Christ crucified. The God-man is the propitiation of sins. That word propitiation simply means the forgiveness of sins by means of the shedding of blood. We see in the propitiation of our sins that unless Jesus propitiated our sins, then we are doomed forever. You and I cannot do anything to remedy our deplorable state. We read in Isaiah 64, verse 6, it states, All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Our iniquities take us away like the wind. And as Isaiah 64, 7 says, No one arouses himself to take hold of thee. No one. There is no one who is reaching out to God in their own power. It's impossible. This is why Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And you are what you are by the grace of God if you have believed only in Jesus and run only to him for your salvation. One of the great failures of the modern church is the failure to preach what I call the old rugged cross. To preach, to bring about the conviction of sins. One only has to study the great revivals of the past centuries and what the great preachers preached. It was centered on Christ crucified, and it was centered on Christ risen from the dead. 
In that type of preaching, people used to weep, sometimes so loud that the sermons could hardly be heard, because the preacher drove home their miserable state, demanded conviction of sins in order to be saved, and the people sensed that without God's mercy and grace, they were, there was no hope, and they were right. But besides Christ crucified, there is another fundamental doctrine brought out in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. And that is, is that not only did Jesus die for our sins and was buried, he was also raised from the dead on the third day. Did you notice earlier when we, in our confession of faith, dealt with the Nicene Creed, the Creed, and we read the Nicene Creed, did you notice in the second section what it says? Turn there, take a look at it again. In the Nicene Creed it says, in, part, in this part it says, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Where do you think the Nicene Creed derived a good portion of this statement, but from our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In order to be saved, you must believe in a literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul says, that's the gospel that I preached. Now next week, I'm going to preach an entire sermon dealing just with the resurrection, because that is the focus of verses 12 through 22. But for the time being, we need to emphasize the fact that you cannot be a Christian without believing that Jesus rose from the dead. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, and we'll see this truth brought out. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. There you have it. You have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the heart in order to be saved. As I mentioned, next week I'll focus on the resurrection. And in that resurrection of Jesus, he is a risen Savior. He is not dead like the other religious leaders of the past. Muhammad today is dead. Buddha is dead. Confucius is 
dead. Joseph Smith of the Mormon faith is dead. Hallelujah. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus appeared to all the disciples and to 500 people all at one time. As important as an eyewitness testimony is, our faith does not rest on eyewitness testimony. Even though the Old Testament does say that every fact is confirmed by the accurate testimony of two or more witnesses. Now, why is Jesus' resurrection an essential doctrine in order to be saved? Simply put, and I'll elaborate it on more of it next week, a dead Savior cannot save you. A dead Savior cannot sustain you. A dead Savior can't redeem your body. A dead Savior can't give you eternal life. Turn with me to Acts 26 and verses 22 through 23. Paul is before Agrippa, and he is saying to them, in verse 23, he says, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. So Paul was believed to be mad, out of his mind, because he believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus died for sinners. When I was in Texas, I've mentioned this story to you before, but it is pertinent to our text today. I played tennis with a man, and when he found out, that I was a preacher, he, we got talking, and he said, I'm a Christian. But he went on to say, but I don't believe that Jesus was divine. I don't believe, really, that he physically rose from the dead. Upon which I said, I'm going to give you a booklet that I want you to read. And I gave him that booklet that I have back there called, Do You Really Know the Gospel? Several weeks went by. We were going to play tennis again. His car had broken down, so he wanted me to pick him up at his apartment. So I rode by, and they came, and he was in there, and he says, John, I really want to speak to you today, not and not play tennis, but just talk to you. And tears were welling up. I thought he might have been convicted of his sins. But he said to me, I read your booklet, and I have a problem. And I said, what's that? He said, your booklet is too absolutistic. Meaning, I was saying that Jesus absolutely is the God-man, that Jesus absolutely is the, the one who died for sins, and he rose from the dead, and that you have to believe that in order to be a Christian. This man tried hard that day to get me to at least admit there could possibly be at least some mistake in the Bible. But he found out soon that I would not relinquish one inch of this. I would not 
admit one mistake, nothing. And I maintain the absolute necessity of the Bible being the Word of God. At which point, he finally said, John, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And I thought, is he throwing me out of his apartment? He got up and he escorted me out of his apartment. Later, he would apologize for throwing me out of his apartment. But he never did come to saving faith, to my knowledge, when I was in Texas. This was a man who confessed that he was a Christian. But he believed in vain. He believed in vain because he didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Because he didn't believe that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection, as Romans 1.4 says. We read, as important as eyewitness testimony may be, it isn't the most convincing thing. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter 1, we read this, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's all about Scripture, not eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is not the basis of our faith. It may be corroborary, but it is not the basis. Our trust is not in our experience. Our trust is not in what we have seen with our eyes. Our trust is in the Scriptures. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to all the disciples, and yet he had not yet appeared to Thomas, Thomas, the skeptic, says, I won't believe him. I won't believe he's risen from the dead unless I see him, unless I put my hand in his hand and in his side. Jesus appears to him, says, Thomas, sees him. Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response to Thomas was, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are they who have never seen and yet have believed. It is more blessed to believe what you have not seen, than to see with your own eyes. And how do we know it to be true? We have the Scriptures, the Scriptures that we have believed. In our text in 1 Corinthians 15, does it not say in our text about his crucifixion and his resurrection? Notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you, 
as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. It's all about according to the Scriptures. Jesus rebuked people for failing to trust in the Scriptures. Jesus affirmed to the all believers down through the ages that as the fact that Thomas saw and believed, he says, blessed, blessed are they who have never seen and yet have believed. It's greater to trust in the Scriptures and believe than to see it with their own eyes. In Matthew 22, 23 through 29, you have a group, a sect called the Sadducees that did not believe that men rose from the dead. And then they were trying to trap Jesus with a question about if a, if a woman um, is married to a man and he dies and marries another and marries up to seven men and all these die, who has her in heaven? Which man? And Jesus says, you err because you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. And then went on to describe there is no marriage in heaven. But the emphasis here is you err because you do not understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. The scriptures not only prophesied Jesus' death, the scriptures prophesied of his resurrection. Turn with me to Luke 24 and how Jesus on the day of resurrection comes and walks along with a couple of his disciples who didn't even recognize him at first. Turn with me to Luke 24 verses 25 and 26 starting out. Luke 24, 25 and 26 says, when Jesus was with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? He, what does he say to them? Slow of heart, foolish. They had the prophets that spoke of his crucifixion, and it is entering into glory, his resurrection and his ascension, and yet they didn't believe. Jesus also said to these two disciples, in verses 44 through 46, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, you have the Scriptures. And if you have the Scriptures, you should understand that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, where in the Old Testament does it say that Jesus would rise from the dead? Well, turn to Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. 
This is a messianic psalm at this passage. Psalm 16.10 says, Thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. This is a prophecy of Christ's resurrection. You might say, well, I don't see Jesus being referred to here. Let me ask you this. Are the New Testament apostles inspired or not? And when they speak about Old Testament scriptures in the New Testament, are they accurately speaking? Well, of course they are. They are inspired. So their interpretation of the Old Testament is the proper interpretation. Turn with me, then, to Acts chapter 2, and let's look at verses 30 and 32. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He has just preached to them, saying that they have crucified Jesus. They participated in that crucifixion. And in verse 30, Peter is saying that David was a prophet, and he prophesied about this day. Peter says in verse 30, And so, because he, referring to David, was a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to hell, nor did his flesh suffer de decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This is the message that was preached. Peter says that Jesus is that one who did not suffer decay. Paul preached the same message. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13 and take a look at verses 34 and 35 when Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. This is what Paul says, Acts 13, 34 and 35. He says, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to decay. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou will not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. So, Peter and Paul both understood Psalm 16, to refer to the risen Christ. So all that you need, brethren, is the Scriptures. And even though eyewitness testimony is valid, and, and even though it corroborates, it is not the basis of our faith. It is not the basis of why we believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead because the Bible tells me so. The Scripture is the final authority. All your faith needs is Scripture. We learn a great lesson from Luke chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. In a story that Jesus tells, a true story, 
How about a man who dies, a poor man who dies and goes to Abraham's bosom, and a rich man who dies and is in hell suffering torment? We read in Luke 16 the following. Luke 16, verse 30, we see this man suffering in hell, saying, I have five brothers, and that I pray thee, warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. This is a powerful passage because it says, People rising from the dead, as miraculous as that might be, is not the most convincing thing. And if people won't believe the Scriptures by faith that Jesus was risen from the dead, neither, neither will they be persuaded if they see it with their own eyes. So you see, Scripture is the most important thing. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 1, section 5, and it's talking about the authority of scriptures and why we believe the Bible to be the Word of God. It says we believe the Bible to be the Word of God because of all the marvelous things that are that gives testimony to being uh, the fact that it is like no other book, that it testifies to itself that it is the Word of God. But here's the key phrase. It says, however, the greatest persuasion is the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, persuading us that the Bible is the Word of God. Brethren, all that you need is the Bible. But we're not through with the exam. You may yet fail the exam. And you may yet hear Jesus say, depart from me, you lawless ones. And that's the key word, you lawless ones. In our text, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, it says that we may believe in vain. He says, you are saved if you persevere, if you hold fast. But you've got to hold fast. Perseverance is not the basis of our salvation, but we cannot be saved without the perseverance. Perseverance, then, is the proof of our justification, not the cause of it. That is an important distinction. It demonstrates that we are justified, but is not the basis of it. We're, we don't persevere in order to be saved. We persevere because we are saved. And if we don't persevere, it simply means we were never saved from the outset. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is a powerful passage. Here's what it says. Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? 
He who began a good work in you will, not maybe, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That means the coming of Christ. God will see you through, guaranteed. Now let's turn to a passage that shows us those who did believe in vain. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Here's what we read. And it has to do with the nation of Israel. Verse 6 says, But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. And then he goes on to say in verse 12 through verse 14 of Hebrews 3, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Now we also read down in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this, this glorious fact. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Most of those who came out of Egypt, the scripture says, fell in the wilderness. They fell because they did not believe in their heart even though they had the good news preached to them. They had a hardened heart. They did not hold fast. And if you don't hold fast, the scripture says later in Hebrews, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You must persevere to the end. And if you really know Jesus, you will persevere to the end. We read in Philippians chapter 2, this passage in verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, it's not talking about you earning your salvation. When it says work out your salvation, it means that God, it says, is at work in you, both to the will of his good pleasure. When God works in you, you work. When God has transformed you, you are different. You're not the same person. And you do demonstrate your faith by good works. The good works don't save you, but they do prove that you are justified. Jesus said 
in his <clears throat> parable, a story about the vine, that he, uh, that he was the vine and we are the branches, he said, unless you abide in me, you can't do anything. And the branch that doesn't abide in me, he says, is broken off and burned up. What imagery do you think that he means by that? Obviously in hell. Burned up. Because in verse 8 he says that you bear much fruit and thereby prove to be my disciple. You see, by bearing fruit, we prove that we are his disciple. And so we see in conclusion, brethren, as you have examined yourself today, let me ask you, are you trusting only in the atoning death of Jesus and not your own righteousness? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead because the Scripture says it? Are you bearing fruit of righteousness? You may not be perfect, of course, because you're not perfect. Even though Jesus says you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Are you striving after righteousness? Are you a different person because of your faith in Jesus? Are you going to run the race to the finish? You see, the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is like a marathon race. It take, it's a grueling, long race. And in this race that we all are running, you had better just finish. It's not about coming in first. It's just finishing the race. Finish the race. And if you finish the race, believing in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and that he was raised from the dead, and you believe that up until the last breath, then you will hear Jesus say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Brethren, this is the gospel. Let us pray.